So we're in Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to take the time to read the whole chapter together. Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll read from verse 1. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation, and not increased the joy. They joy before thee, according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice, when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise, and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The Lord sent a word unto into Jacob and it hath lighted upon Israel. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, The bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him, and join his enemies together, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For the people turneth not unto him that smiteth them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush, in one day. The ancient and honourable, he is the head, and the prophet that teacheth lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For every one is an hypocrite and an evildoer and every mouth speaketh folly. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burneth as the fire, 
It shall devour the briars and thorns and shall kindle in the thickets of the forest and they shall mount up like the lifting up of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened and the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother and he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry and he shall eat on the left hand and they shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his word. While admiring Isaiah's clear and full and perceptive views of the Lord Jesus, we may be tempted to move quickly to the familiar verses of this chapter concerning the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming into the world the verses that perhaps are quoted so frequently in, uh, in, in carol services and in churches at the time of uh, their incarnation and Christmas celebrations. We would do that thinking that it's an easy place to see the Lord. And we might in our eagerness be uh, keen to, as it were, collect the low-hanging fruit that the prophet provides for us. And of course, these verses are familiar to us, being read often as they are in carol services and printed in Christmas cards. But so too, the opening verses of this chapter helpfully remind us that there is context here with respect to these verses. And while we cannot pass them because we're looking for the Lord in Isaiah, they nevertheless teach us that there is context and context is important. And it is important for what we have to say today. Isaiah's purpose, writing as he does by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is to inform God's remnant people, that God will not jeopardise his covenant promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob or his prophecies to Moses and to Job and to David, despite the fact that he is bringing judgment upon the nations of Israel and Judah. Now it is true that these nations, Israel and Judah, will be severely punished for their idolatry and their rebellion. And we read much of this towards the end of the chapter with respect to the fact that the Lord's hand is still outstretched because of the persistent rebellion and wickedness that is evidenced in the lives of these nations. Their idolatry. Their abuses one against another. 
But the Lord is saying to his people, to his elect, to his remnant, to his little ones, his flock, that he will not forget his covenant promises and that a remnant will be preserved. And from that remnant will come the Messiah that was promised so long ago. He whom Isaiah calls the branch in chapter 4 verse 2 a few weeks ago we read in that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And it's these escapees It is these who are the remnant people, those that would be preserved, that Isaiah is principally writing to, to encourage and comfort them that God's promises are not forgotten. And sometimes as we read these verses, we notice that Isaiah is addressing different people or different groups of people. Sometimes he is speaking to nations, for example, Syria or Israel or Judah or Assyria, even Egypt, I think, on occasions we've found already. Sometimes he's speaking to an individual like King Ahaz. But always Isaiah's principal audience is the remnant people, and we should remember this. Always his purpose is to prepare the Lord's elect for what is going soon to happen. That they may be comforted with reassurances that the hard times coming won't last forever, but will come to an end. And this is the sense of these opening verses. It's true, there is darkness and gloom all about but it shall not last forever. And the prophet is very specific. He he speaks about the people of Galilee, long despised, stigmatized, brutalized. These people of Galilee will see the Messiah walk amongst them. They who walked long in darkness or mourning, or oppression, will see a great light, and the light shall shine on them. Here is the the, the prophet Isaiah telling us not only that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come, not only how he will be born, not only of the glory and the beauty that will attach to his ministry, but the very places where he will walk in Zebulun and Naphtali, in Galilee of the nations. The Messiah would come to Galilee. And this light that Isaiah speaks of is Christ himself. And we see that in Luke chapter 2 when Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, says of Christ, he's speaking I think in verse 78 and 79, he says, the day spring, which is the light The day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness 
and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And he is drawing on this prophecy from Isaiah, recognising that this is what Isaiah was speaking about. So that Christ is this light shining in darkness. Initially in Galilee, or here called Galilee of the Nations, which reminds us that while Christ came first to the Jews, his purpose was always much wider than an earthly kingdom amongst the Jewish people. Now that was long conceived to be what Christ's kingdom would would be like, and even his disciples struggled to lose that notion throughout the Lord's ministry, as, as we have seen at other times. But Christ's kingdom is a worldwide kingdom of God's elect, a people redeemed by his blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So that the Lord Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So coming first to Galilee of the nations, but with this view to increase and expand and carry this gospel message, this glorious gospel that brings light into the souls of men and women and boys and girls and would be carried to the ends of the earth by the Lord's apostles and the establishment of his church. And Isaiah continues by pointing out that this one who is coming will deliver his people as a great warrior, fighting their battles, destroying their enemies and setting them at liberty. And while many looked to the Messiah to come as a conquering king. They, they longed for him when Israel fought against them. They longed for them when Syria came against them, when the Midianites or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or ultimately the Romans. What they did not grasp was that this kingdom was a spiritual kingdom. And that Christ would establish a spiritual kingdom fighting their battles not on the high ground and the terrain of Israel or in the walled cities of Jerusalem and Samaria, but rather on the cross itself where our enemies, the law, where, where uh, Satan, where uh, the, 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 the flesh of man all rose against the Lord Jesus Christ. So that when we do get to the astonishing verses that speak so clearly from Isaiah verse 6 and 7 concerning the one who is coming, this warrior king, this one who uh, rolls his garments in blood, this one who will be the uh, 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 Christ, who the Messiah who will take his message to the ends of the earth and gather his kingdom. We note that it is for the comfort of the Lord's elect that these things are said. 
the Lord Jesus Christ was coming to the believers of Judah first and then to the others beyond. And it is to these that the words are here spoken. So that when we read in verses 6 and 7, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The emphasis there is so often put upon the child that is born and the son that is given without proper recognition given to the fact that it was unto us that this child is born and unto us that the son was given. It was to the elect, it was to the remnant, it was to those that Isaiah was speaking to for their personal, specific, distinct comforting through the years of their tribulation. The coming of the Saviour was not a new beginning or an alternative approach. It was the culmination of centuries of waiting, of anticipation, of generations longing for, hoping for, the promises that God had given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David coming to fruition. Their faith had been tested and God's spiritual people had been tried almost to the point of breaking. But unto us the son was given. Unto us the child was born. The carol that uh, is sometimes sung about the little town of Bethlehem, the, the child that would be born in that uh, little town of Bethlehem, we, we think of it as being born to us, unto them that believe, unto them that are called. Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. And that is the sense in which the, 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 the phrase from that little carol, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It was the hopes and fears of the remnant, the hopes and fears of the elect, the hopes and fears of the Lord's people through all those dark years that found their culmination, found their focus, found their true meaning in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we speak of Christ being wonderful in these verses 6 and 7, he is wonderful to us who believe he is wonderful. I don't want to deny anyone their Christmas festivities, but the Lord Jesus Christ is not yours unless he is wonderful to you. The Lord Jesus Christ is not yours unless he is counsellor to you, unless he is your wisdom. If Christ is not made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, we are none of his. We are neither in him nor of him. The Lord Jesus Christ is not yours 
until you see and acknowledge him as the mighty God. He's not yours until he is your spiritual father. And you have been born again into his family. He's not yours if you have not the peace that he alone as Prince of Peace can give. And so there are many who take these verses and adopt these verses and, and, uh, and embrace them as being for them. When the Lord tells his people through his prophet Isaiah, it is unto us that the son is given. It is unto us that the child is born. But if Christ is wonderful to us, if Christ is our wisdom and our counsellor, if he is our mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace to us, then we are blessed indeed. Because it is unto us that this child is born and it is unto us that this son is given. He is ours and we are his. And all he has done is for our eternal benefit as well as our temporal good. And nor can we doubt this because he is wonderful and he does wonderful things for us. He has done wonderful things and continues to do wonderful things for his people. Those who are the apple of his eye, those who are his flock, his treasured possession. He makes us wise unto salvation. He is mighty to save and he holds our hand and he will not let us go. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, I will receive you and will be a father unto you and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And we shall know peace in this world and in the next, because to know Christ is to know the Prince of Peace. And I admire the way that Isaiah speaks of Christ in terms and terminology that is appropriate to the needs of the remnant people of his day. Remember he had an audience in view, he had a people in mind that he was writing to and while this is inspired by the Holy Spirit yet there is a relevance even in the very language and in the, the pictures and the metaphors, the, 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 the uh, way in which the phraseology and the descriptions are given. He was writing to the people of his day and he was writing to all men and women of spiritual need in all ages. But he links the need of the elect remnant to the attributes of the Saviour. He speaks of his shoulder. He speaks of his name. He speaks of his government and his kingdom. This child that was born, this son that was given, it would be Christ's shoulder that these people would lean upon. It would be Christ's name that would reveal the various attributes of his character 
and his accomplishments. It was Christ's government that would rule and reign in the midst of the anarchic circumstances of the lives of this remnant people. And it was Christ's kingdom that would endure forever. King Ahaz of Judah wanted to lean on Assyria's shoulder for support. But Christ will have us lean on his shoulder. He is the shepherd that lays his lambs on his shoulder and carries them home to safety. And our strength, our ability to to make that journey from here to heaven is not in our own might, it's not in our own wisdom. He shall direct our paths, not by might, nor by power, but but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And again, when we think about his name, his name is wonderful. No other name is wonderful. His name is counsellor. No other name is counsellor. He is the one exclusively. He alone is the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Ahaz stooped to idolatry. He stooped to uh, gain and, and, and obtain the pleasure of men. But the elect remnant were confirmed in their dedication to Christ alone. And Christ alone is the Prince of Peace. When we were enemies, when we were uh, alienated, then we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. I think we said it earlier. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given amongst men, whereby we must be saved. So it is Christ alone in this great work of uh, his name that speaks to us of these living truths. And Isaiah speaks of his government, Christ's government. And it's brought forward to the people of Isaiah's day because this child that had been given is himself almighty God who created all things, who upholds all things and by whom all things subsist. You know, it's when we read verses like these and and simply pause on them and dwell on them for a moment or two that we see the the, the, the true dimensions of what the Holy Spirit actually says to the people of God with respect to their safety and security in Christ. And we see the futility of worrying and the foolishness of doubting when it is Christ who governs all things. But it's our weak flesh that drags us down to doubt and to fear and the temptations of this world. But every circumstance, every providence, every leaf that falls, 
Every breath, every plant, every animal, every inanimate object, from the swirling galaxies in space to the rainy days and Mondays, are governed by the governor whose governance is wonderful. Did the remnant people fear the Assyrians at the gates of Jerusalem? Did they worry during the Babylonian captivity? Did they lament the silence of God for 400 years when there was no prophet spoke in the land? Isaiah says, easy, easy. He says to the people, be patient. He says, a child shall be born and of his government there shall be no end. Can we believe that? Shall we believe it? I think we ought to believe it. And Isaiah speaks of his kingdom. He speaks of his shoulder, he speaks of his name, he speaks of his government, and he speaks of his kingdom. And he says that his kingdom is ordered and established with judgment and with justice. This is a beautiful picture of the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ has secured the salvation of his people. This was, this was no uh, mere uh, uh, passing over of sin or, or gratuitous benevolence on the part of God. God dealt with our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. This son who was given, this child that was born, he established his kingdom with judgment and justice. He bore our judgment in his own body on the tree. He stood before the very justice and holiness of God and he has vindicated God's holiness and he has established God's justice and he has enabled God's mercy and grace by the sacrifice that he made. This is what it means that his kingdom is ordered. We are the kingdom of God. We are the kingdom of Christ. And it is an ordered kingdom and an established kingdom because its footing and its foundation is upon the work of Christ. The ancient kingdom of Judah seemed to be slipping into oblivion like the nations around about. These empires rose and simply gobbled up all the little nations around about them, of which Judah and Israel were, were, were two. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. But not this one. Not this one. Not the kingdom of God. Not the church of Jesus Christ. Not the kingdom populated by the elect of God. The beloved of God. The saved and secured. The blood-bought people. The glorified of God. Not that kingdom. Isaiah touched all the buttons of these troubled saints. 
Now, long gone, long dead, long passed into eternity, this remnant people, these elect brothers and sisters of ours in Christ who lived so long ago in the days of Isaiah and in the subsequent centuries. But those same people, even today, they watch you and me from their vantage point in heaven. And they call on us, this great crowd of witnesses, they call on us to trust the Lord and await the glorious consummation of all things, just as they waited for the coming of Christ. We wait for his second coming. When we shall join them in the presence of Christ, the King, in his kingdom. And let me finish today with a point that I touched on a little in our introduction yesterday. Isaiah faithfully brought God's message. He spoke of judgment and he spoke of salvation. He warned of God's wrath and he preached the way of life and peace that would be found in Christ. He preached God's holiness and love, justice and grace. He showed how punishment and mercy coexist side by side in the Lord's dealings with fallen men and women. And as God's righteousness is visited upon his enemies in judgment, his pity flows to his children in love. In the final sections of, of this chapter, chapter 9 of Isaiah, reminds us that wickedness shall never go unnoticed of the Lord. There is a day of accountability coming. Evil will not go unpunished. This is a warning to the world. The hand of God is stretched out still, displaying his purity and his truth. And this message that Isaiah preached of both the righteousness and the grace of God, the holiness and wrath of God, and his mercy and love to his people. This message was given to believers long ago from God by Isaiah. And that message of Christ's coming to exercise this ministry brought them hope in the midst of their hopelessness. It spoke of peace to those who were surrounded by their enemies. It gave courage to a people gripped by fear. And the elect looked to God and they looked to the Lord Jesus Christ. They looked to the coming Prince of Peace and by faith they found comfort in trusting in him. And God's elect still look to Jesus. And in doing so, they still experience the peace that he has procured 
through the blood of his cross. And maybe you ask, how do I know if I'm one of God's elect? How can I tell if I am under God's wrath or under his mercy? How will I know if his blood was shed for me? Exactly as these Old Testament believers did. They trusted God's word. They rested on God's promises. And they, they looked to the Lord Jesus Christ to be all their salvation. So that trusting and resting and looking to Christ are evidences of God's grace in the life of a sinner. And oh, brothers and sisters, I know it's not a perfect trust. And I know that it is not an undisturbed rest. And sadly, it isn't even a steady looking to Christ because this flesh, this old man and the uh, trials and tribulations of this world and the temptations of the devil rise up against us and interfere frequently. As often as it can. But it is real faith nevertheless that looks to Christ and rests in him and has him as a shoulder and looks to his name and his governance and his kingdom as our hope. That is the evidence of our election, just the same as it was to the men and women of Isaiah's day. Isaiah tells us, that God's hand was stretched out still in judgment. But that same hand is stretched out still in mercy. And as the Lord Jesus gives us eyes to see our own sin and unworthiness and need, to discern the enemies that we have around about us in the world, in the flesh and in the devil. Those enemies without and those enemies within. So he lifts our eyes to see Christ and he gives us faith sufficient to trust in him. Jesus Christ doesn't change from the days of Isaiah to the days of his uh, uh, pilgrimage on this world to these days in which we live. Jesus Christ is the same today and forevermore. He who comforted his people in days long past comforts his people still. And the same hand stretched out still to judge is stretched out still to bless. Trust him. He will do you good. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Amen. Amen.